We don't have cable, which is my Lenten practice that carries through the entire year. We don't have cable, which means I tend to binge watch shows on Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. I'm guessing I'm not the only one, but that's my situation. I'm currently working my way through a show called Veronica Mars. Veronica, if you haven't seen it, is a young detective with a gift, a gift for solving modern-day mysteries. In nearly every episode, a peer approaches Veronica with a problem. Someone has been wronged by someone else, and they need Veronica's help to figure out who done it. I'm in season three, and there's only three seasons, so I've finally figured out the pattern that makes this rather simple show work, the pattern that makes it interesting, despite being pretty familiar by now. In nearly every episode, Veronica's initial assumption is incorrect. In nearly every episode, the first person she identifies as the guilty party turns out not to be. The intriguing dilemma, then, in each episode is not defeating the enemy, it's figuring out who the enemy is. The Old Testament passage we heard today from Genesis is a classic. It's the climax of the dramatic story of what happened when God's anger and dismay at humankind's wickedness compelled God to wipe out humanity and all living things with one great snowstorm. One great flood. You know the story. God is grieved by the cruelty of God's people. God tells Noah to build an ark. Noah's friends think he's nuts. They think he's even crazier when they start seeing animals come to the ark two by two. Then it starts to rain and rain and rain, killing every living thing on earth, except for Noah, his closest family, and the animals on the ark. When you pause to think about it, it's a pretty horrific story. And yet it's a story we love to tell, especially to our littlest ones. It's, it's crazy. Out of anger, rage, God wipes out all of humanity and then starts over again, hits the reset button with a faithful few. The end. Only that is not the end. There is more to the story. This past week, as I often do for a sermon, I put something out there on Facebook for folks to kind of comment on. And of all the folks who commented on what in this story sticks out most to them, only one person, one person, mentioned the rainbow. You all seem fixated on the animals fitting inside the ark. But not one of you, only one of you, considered the rainbow and its meaning when you thought of Noah and the ark. It's almost as if, it's almost as if we are more comfortable with the God of the flood than we are with the God of the rainbow. Listen again to what God says to Noah at the end of this crazy story. God has just wiped out all of humanity. And this is what God says. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Any God worth worshiping needs to be able to save and destroy. Isn't that what gods do? They save, destroy, reward, and punish. But in these beautiful and confounding verses, our ancestors, the ancient Hebrews, did something unheard of. In ancient mythology, the bow and the arrow are symbols of a warrior's power and strength. But here the Hebrews tell a story of a God, our God, who willingly chooses to take the bow and hang it up in the clouds, promising never to use that kind of destructive power again to destroy the earth. This would be like our government shutting down the Department of Defense today and opening that Department of Peace that Denis Kucinich loved to talk about. This is a radical act. It's amazing. The God of all creation promises never to get again to be our adversary. God promises never again to hurt us or destroy us, no matter what. It's an amazing story. And yet, so many of us live as if we are still at war with God. It's easy to miss it, but did you notice what Mark says? Did you notice that when Mark retells the story of Jesus heading out into the wilderness, he says that Jesus was driven out by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who baptized him now drives him, forces him out into the wilderness. This is not an invitation or a suggestion. This is something Jesus has to do. Now, when he's out there in no man's land, we are told that he was with the animals and that he dealt with Satan. But that's just one name for what he faced out there in the desert. Some of you might prefer to say he faced his demons. That'd be okay. Others among you might say that he dealt with the voices in his head that told him he wasn't good enough or smart enough or strong enough to do what God had sent him to do. You can call it whatever you want, what he faced out there in the desert. But when Jesus was alone out there, he wasn't battling God. I wonder, I wonder if before his time in the wilderness, Jesus thought that his primary struggle on earth would be with God. I wonder if he first thought that his biggest challenge as he walked on this earth would not be with us, but with his creator. This is, after all, our first impression of things. God claims us and places expectations upon us, and when we don't meet them, we worry that God will be disappointed and do something to set us straight. We mess up, as we often do, and then something bad happens as a result of our error, and we see it as a punishment or a lesson from God. Something doesn't go the way we think it should, and we blame ourselves, or even worse, our Creator. In both word and deed, we live and act as if we are in a wrestling match with God. 
where we have to prove ourselves and show our strength in order to give, to receive God's care and blessing. There's a problem, though. This God doesn't exist anymore. We don't worship the God of the flood. We worship the God of the rainbow. We worship a God who has given up the fight. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I think it's important time to time to share my weaknesses with you. A couple of years ago, I spent many valuable hours of my life reading the four books in the Twilight series. (laughs) Now, I did it for you. You all were reading them. I had to identify with your struggles, and so I succumbed to the pressure of reading the Twilight series. If you somehow missed out on the Twilight series, consider yourself blessed by our creator. (laughs) The series is about a teenage girl who falls in love with a vampire. He's a good vampire, doesn't drink human blood, only animal blood, and he's really good looking, too. Books, to be honest, aren't particularly well-written, and the movies are painful. (laughs) But despite that, the author, Stephanie Meyer, is now filthy rich. And she's filthy rich because she brilliantly captured the drama and the all-consuming passion of young love. Truth be told, there's nothing else like young love. No offense to teenagers in the audience, we've all been there, but when you're in love, it's like you're possessed. So much so that it can be hard at times to to watch. That kind of love blinds you to all reason. It makes you so vulnerable to getting hurt. And we know from experience, when you love someone that way, blindly and passionately, you will, in time, get hurt. Now, if you look closely at the beginning of the story between Noah and God with that ark, God acts a bit like an irrational, love-struck teenager who is ruled by emotions. God is grieved by the behavior of God's first love and acts compulsively and cruelly because of those feelings destroying nearly every living thing in the rage. But here's what's interesting. We would think that God might mature as the story goes along, but at the end of the story, the part we came to today, God is still ruled by emotions. But this time, instead of giving in to sadness and anger, God gives in to love. Today, I want us to consider the possibility that the Spirit drove Jesus, pushed him into the wilderness because God wanted to remind him and us that our battle is not with God, that God is not our adversary. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love and there is nothing you can do to undo God's great gift of love for you. You can reject God, curse God, yell at God, deny God, turn your back on God, and God will keep pursuing you. You can befriend Jesus on Facebook, slam God on Twitter, and act as if Jesus Christ is the least important person in the world, and God will keep calling you, God will keep reaching out to you, God will keep sending you friend requests, no matter 
how many times you deny them. It's pathetic, really, and a bit painful at times to watch. God loves you with an irrational love, a love that trumps all logic and reason. And God has promised us, with that rainbow, to never turn away from that love. We may still fight with God, but God is done fighting with us. This is going to make it sound like I only read young adult fiction, but I promise I have a broader repertoire. But in the second movie of The Hunger Games, I know, it's bad. In the second movie of The Hunger Games, the books are also much better. When heroine, heroine Katniss Everdeen is sent back into the arena to fight to the death the other remaining victors, her mentor, Hamish, offers one last little bit of wisdom before she enters the ring. Katniss, he says, when you're in the arena, remember what? Remember who the real enemy is. Our first assumptions about God are rarely correct. These next 40 days of Lent are not about us getting ourselves right with God. They are about remembering who the real adversary is. When you find yourself in the wilderness, when you find yourself with your back against the wall, when you find yourself going through a deep, dark valley, it's going to be really tempting to blame God or even worse, yourself. It's going to be really easy to gear up for an old-fashioned fight. Resist the temptation. Remember who the real enemy is. Your adversary in the wilderness is anything or anyone, real or imagined, who tells you that you are not good enough for God. That what is happening to you is some punishment, some lesson, that you somehow deserve this struggle, that you somehow don't deserve God's love. The wilderness is not some form of sadistic punishment. It is simply the place where we go to discover who the real enemy is. If you notice, when Jesus was alone in the desert, the angels of God waited on him, we are told. In his struggle with evil personified, even Jesus had help. He was never alone out there, and neither are we. When I watch people fight with God, the hardest thing about it is as you begin to fight with God, you don't see God for who God is. When you begin to see God as an adversary who's out to get you or to teach you a lesson or to punish you in some way, you miss out on all the ways that God is a friend, an advocate, a supporter, and a guide. Our fight is not with God. Those days are over. We don't worship the God of the flood. We worship the God of the rainbow. Now, the love that God has for us may baffle us. It may make us uncomfortable. We may think God is crazy to never give up on us, but that's simply not our call. When it comes to our relationship with God, God has chosen to be ruled by an irrational emotion, 
an emotion that causes people to do the silliest of things, an emotion that trumps all others when given the chance, an emotion that makes people at times act like a fool. When it comes to us and the God of all creation, God is ruled by love, nothing else. And we are the benefits of that love this day and every day to come. Amen.